Hello, this is the Davis Vanguard. I am David Greenwald, your host for our inaugural podcast, and we have with us Mayor Brett Lee. Welcome to the show, Brett Lee. Uh, thanks, David. Um, so we're going to talk about Davis politics, strangely enough. Um, uh, and I, I, I thought we'd start with homeless because you know we don't we don't want light issues uh, to talk about here. Um, so last week, you guys gave direction, uh, you guys being the Davis City Council, uh, to explore a day center um, at. Uh, at the uh, corporation yard uh, on Fifth Street, and uh, you moved away from a Second Street location that was drawing a lot of criticism from people in the Mace Ranch area. But sounds like you may get a lot of criticism from people in the Davis Manor area. Uh, so, kind of your thoughts on why you moved the location, and also why what a respite center is and why we need it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's just jump into why we moved it. So we actually hadn't settled on a location. I would say my preferred location has always been the fifth street area near the corporate yard. Uh, I think staff had thought that the second street location might have been a less controversial place because it's a, a bit further from uh, homes. And so understandably staff is, um, as well as council members have been concerned about what the neighborhood reaction would be. As um, you know, anytime you mention uh, services or a location for homeless folks, the near neighbors tend to get um, anxious. And I would say some of their anxiety is warranted given that you know, what we see in other communities. A lot of times facilities for homeless folks really are uh, problematic. I mean, they're, I mean let's, let's just be candid. They're messy. They don't appear to be well-organized. There's, you know, crime. There's just sort of filth. There's all sorts of things. And, and so when people hear like, oh, a homeless facility or a homeless center, their minds immediately start to picture sort of the worst case examples. In our research and preparing for this idea of a respite center, and I'll go into the details of that uh, in a little bit, we looked at sort of the best practices. There are a lot of well-run, tidy, crime, I won't say crime-free, but places with very little problems. And we've seen some examples in Denver and Seattle and Portland. And, um, you know, if you were to look at one of them, you would say, oh, well, yeah, that, that's not a bad thing. I'm not worried about having something like this uh, near my neighborhood. And so I can understand why neighbors are uh, concerned because it's where they live. It's where their families, you know, come and go and they're worried about, you know, what's going to happen. And a lot of our experience is sort of what we see. I mean, for instance, I was in the Bay Area recently and an underpass in Oakland, and it was just almost something out of Mad Max. I mean, it just was really concerning and disturbing, and reasonable, thoughtful people would rightfully be concerned about having something like that near their homes. Uh, but that's not what we're trying to do. The respite center idea essentially is let's treat people like human beings. Let's give them some basics. And so what I mean by basics, let's give them a place to... Uh, be able to take a sh hot shower, wash their clothes, 
uh, have flush toilets, stay out of the rain, and in the summer, stay out of the you know 105-degree weather. And something like this doesn't cost a lot of money. It can be done relatively inexpensively. And the idea behind the respite center is that it's this is meant to be a pilot. So often, um, you know, when you look at the staff report, when you look at our discussions, we always mention the word pilot because the idea here is that we want to demonstrate that the city can have a well-run facility that doesn't cause a lot of near-neighbor impacts. And so we have to prove to the neighbors that the city can do this and it won't be something that people are really upset about. You know, they need to see it and go, oh, okay. We have some nonprofits in uh, Davis, Davis Community Meals for one, that does operate a well-run sort of location that provides homeless services, both daytime and overnight shelter. And so they've proved that they can do it on a small scale or medium scale. What, given the, the challenge of the homelessness issue in our community, we can't just depend on one or two nonprofits. The city has to be involved. So that's why we're sort of trying to take the lead on this respite center. So the first portion would be the daytime aspect. So hot showers, wash your clothes, uh, toilets, uh, a place to stay out of the weather. In addition, the county has said that they will provide uh, staff time to come and meet with the folks who are there if the, the, if the visitors are interested and connect them with the types of services they might be interested in as well as helping them sign up for benefits. A lot of homeless folks are actually eligible for state and federal benefits, but because of sort of their nomadic nature, in terms of not knowing where they're gonna be, you know, a week from today, a week from, you know, tomorrow type of thing, it's hard for them to sign up. It's also hard for them to navigate some of the forms and some of the documentation that's required. So a really important part of this is the, the the resources that the county will be able to provide to help us get people the benefits that they're entitled to. As far as uh, locations, I think originally there were eight possible locations, and I think the location at the city corporate yard on Fifth Street will uh, be a good location. Again, it's a pilot. It's not meant to be a permanent location. We're trying to prove the concept, and I think once it's up and running, the near neighbors will hopefully um, feel much more comfortable about it rather than sort of imagining a worst case scenario. So one of my problems here is that I, I agree with the staff report when they said, no matter where we put this, somebody's going to complain. And, and so I can kind of understand why you would want fifth street over second street. It's closer to the downtown it's uh, closer to where the services are going to be. It's less isolated. I really didn't think 2nd Street was that bad a location. The idea that this was uh, near the, the overpass, you have to walk quite a ways to get to actually the access to the overpass. It's not like it's right there. And, you know, I just felt like it was a bunch of people that – uh, were complaining because they didn't want homeless anywhere near them. But everyone in this town is going to complain that homeless are, are going to be near them. I'm sure you're getting the same feedback from people in Davis Manor now. And, and so, you know, at the end of the day, we have to find some place 
to put these facilities and it seemed like you know no matter where you're going to put it somebody's going to complain how, how do you how do you combat that that mindset I, I i agree with you that wherever we plan to place it the neighbors will initially complain and so the movement from second street to the fifth street corporate yard to me wasn't really about the neighbors complaining it was really about where is the best location. Uh, I fully anticipate that many near neighbors to the corporate yard will understandably be anxious about it. And again, that's why we need to prove that we're able to have a well-run facility. The Fifth Street location is, to me, is sort of just right in terms of the distance from the downtown. It's not too far, but not too close. Right now, we have the Interfaith Rotating Shelter that's going to be housing you know, 30 or 40 folks a night. And they pick people up uh, in the evening and they house them and provides them with food. And, and in the morning, they bring them ba- back to, you know, at various locations in the town and sort of drop them off for the day. Well, imagine it's a January rainy day and it's, you know, 50 degrees out. Where does that person go? They, they wander around and you know, understandably, um, you know, for instance, if someone were just sort of sitting on the front of my, you know, lawn, uh, in front of my house uh, or my neighbor's house, somebody would call the police, the police would show up and go, Hey, what are you doing? You know, move along. And so there is sort of a natural tendency for the people without anywhere to go to sort of congregate either downtown or in shopping centers, things like that. And it's not that they necessarily want to be there. It's sort of a place where they can go, where they are hassled, the least amount. The idea would be that this daytime location is a place for people to go where they would prefer to go and they wouldn't have to worry about looking over their shoulder and just sort of worrying that someone is going to complain and sort of ask them to move along. You know, we had a couple public, uh, one or two public commenters talk about, well, why would we do this? You know, people already use the library. Why don't they just continue to use the library? Again, I think it relates to what sort of services we want to provide. And then also, I would say the library, if people would like to go to the library, sure, more power to them. But I I don't believe that most people go to the library because they want to be specifically at the library. They're just looking for a place to get out of the, the hot weather or the cold and the rain. And so a more appropriate place where I believe they would be more comfortable and we can actively try to put them in touch with services would be this daytime respite center. So one one last question, and then we'll move on to our next topic here. But uh, how does the res- respite center, and especially the daytime center, compare to what they're planning at Paul's Place? So Paul's Place is essentially a very sizable expansion of the Davis Community Meals H Street location. So it should roughly triple the capacity of what they're doing today. Uh, This does, the daytime respite center doesn't compete with that. It's actually sort of a separate effort. The the homeless challenge that we face is not going to be quote unquote solved by any one endeavor. So one of the things on the respite center, which I think is pretty important, is that we want to have it so that people with pets can come. So we're going to specifically build little kennel areas for people to put their pets while they come inside, do their laundry, and and do whatever. 
many shelter locations don't allow for pets. And, um, you know, as people may have observed, there are a good number of homeless folks who are, um, do have pets and understandably they're very attached to them. And so anything requiring them to give up their pets would be a deal breaker for them. Uh, the Paul's Place um, effort I, I really support. There is going to be an intermediate period where the, the existing Homeless Resources Center on H Street is um, going to be torn down because that's the location where Paul's Place is planned. So there will be this period where Davis Community Meals is going to have a challenge in terms of delivering the level of services they're delivering today during that construction period. So uh, perhaps the respite center, the city's run, city-run respite center can take up some of that slack. Uh, but they, they're slightly different missions. There's a little bit of an overlap, but um, they're not really in, um, they, they are a little bit different from each other. So I want to move on uh, to talk about MACE, which is on your agenda for next week. Um, and I, I, I'm going to kind of lay out my view because I think I have a different view, at least than a lot of the other, uh, community. So I live out in South Davis. I live off of Cowell, almost as far East as you can go in South Davis. And so I have to drive, uh, through Mace one way or the other every day. And my experience is a little different. Um, so first of all, uh, last year and the year before, um, my, my oldest child, uh, went to Harper junior high. And so on a Friday, you know, if I picked him up at three thirty or four o'clock, uh, and head South on Mace, all of a sudden we hit traffic, uh, almost right after the curve and, it would be 20 to 25 minutes of traffic. And what happens is you get to the overpass, you get to the freeway on-ramp, and all of a sudden the traffic opens up. That has nothing to do with any redesign of MACE. That has completely to do with, uh, with, with I-80. Uh, the second thing is that back in 2017, when the weather was bad, it was about January, uh, we were having these kinds of traffic jams on Mace at that time. And there was no redesign at that point in time. So to me, what what's happened is that it's unfortunate for the city that their redesign has coincided with a sharp rise in traffic on I-80 and a sharp rise in the use of the Waze app uh, redirecting people through Tremont uh, from Dixon to uh, try to save about 10 minutes, according to Fair and Peers consultants, uh, by bypassing I-80. And I think a lot of people um, who come to these meetings, and by the way, it's a very skewed demographic that comes to the meetings. Um, you know, most of the people are older and there's nothing wrong with that, but you're not getting uh, a lot of families with children. Uh, you're, and, and so you get one viewpoint. People that are really drivers are uh, come in and they're demanding, hey, let's go back to the way it was. Well, I believe that even if you go back to the way it was, it's not going to be great because you have, um, you have bottlenecks on I-80. Uh, the first bottleneck happens when it goes from six lanes down to three lanes right around UC Davis. 
and that creates a huge backup. And then there's another backup as you enter the causeway where all the traffic from Mace and all the traffic from Road 32 enter the highway and it, it creates a huge slowdown at that point. Until you can fix those, you're not going to fix the local roads. Now, what what I see has happened, and I've noticed this a lot uh, when I drive out on uh, Cowell, is you see a lot of kids all of a sudden riding their bikes to Pioneer Elementary, and you never saw that, or you didn't see it nearly as much as you do now. So, so that has actually worked. Um, my concern is if you end up uh, expanding the, the lanes, A, you're going to divert more traffic through ways through that corridor, and B, you're going to make it less safe for the kids. So so that that's kind of my view. I wanted to get uh, your take on all of this. Yeah, so I, I think the, the MACE corridor will make a, a really good case study in terms of what not to do. So I, I understand. So I, I've heard sort of your perspective before, and, and I will just comment that, you know, one of the reasons why I feel like uh, I was elected to city council is that I should exercise some independent judgment. So the fact that I'm in a room with a bunch of people demanding that we go back to the 1970s design of the road and they had kids, you know, that 50 years ago rode their bikes to school. Therefore, we don't need bike lanes or protected bike lanes or any different or a change to infrastructure. Um, I'm able to not have to, uh, let me express this uh, a little bit better. So just because there's a room full of people demanding that doesn't mean that I believe that's the right approach. And I, I am confident that the approach that, well, this will come up on Tuesday. I am hopeful that the approach we take is the objectively good approach. And so, and I've, you know, I've heard your perspective before, I guess there's a couple of things and, and this is really, the debate has sort of degenerated into this was done for bike safety. So if you change it, you're against bike safety. That's one perspective. And then the other is, oh my gosh, we're stuck in traffic. This is horrible. Make it the way it used to be. Um, as you correctly point out, Interstate 80 is a, a real challenge. There's a higher quantity of traffic traveling on Interstate 80 every day. And we also see traffic backups all throughout the city as people are trying to figure out a way to bypass the horrible traffic jam that occurs right in front of uh, the Mondavi Center where it goes six lanes, works its way ultimately down to three lanes uh, eastbound. And so on Russell Boulevard, occasionally I'm sort of, you know, sort of puzzling through like, why is there all this traffic here on Russell going into fifth and heading east? And it turns out, understandably so, the staff and students and faculty who are on campus at UC Davis when it comes time to go home if they live uh, in Sacramento, they don't get on the normal entry point to Interstate 80, the on and off ramp uh, right by uh, in, uh, UC Davis. They try to avoid Interstate 80 for as long as possible, 
and work their way down Fifth Street to Second Street and sort of ultimately try to get on at Mace or, or, f- or further east just before the causeway. And so that has nothing to do with the Mace Boulevard redesign. So um, I, I accept that. I agree with that. However, when we look at the design itself, it's not a great design for cyclists. There are features of the design which are problematic. So just simply from a cyclist perspective, the design is not great. I would say it's mediocre. As far as the people who are in South Davis trying to get to places, let's say other than Interstate 80, the reduction of lanes and the reduction of right turns has created a additional delay for them. And so we had the consultants dig in and actually fully model that road segment, that road corridor. And it is true that the previous design was easier for people to navigate in South Davis in terms of getting to places they wanted to go. So many people, you talked about going to Harper. There are people who want to go to Harper and they don't actually want to get on Interstate 80. There are people who want to go to Pioneer and they don't actually want to get on Interstate 80. Those journeys are much more difficult today than they used to be. Now, there's a variety of reasons. Part of that is the cut-through traffic for eastbound traffic on Interstate 80, getting off in Dixon and cutting through. But the reality is, is the current road design is less flexible and less able to handle that added capacity. So what I'm hoping we do is actually come up with a great design. We are capable of that. What currently there is there is a mediocre design. It really represents sort of this very simplified thinking. And it's a, I would say it's a clumsy design and represents simplified thinking. And the simplified thinking uh, is still in, in some quarters this idea that, well, let's do a road diet. Let's reduce the number of lanes for cars, therefore making it more difficult and awkward for drivers. Therefore, they might ride their bikes more. That, that, that is sort of, I think, uh, not a great way of thinking. I think the great way of, th- a better way of thinking is you can have facilities for cars, pedestrians, and bikes, and we need to have those facilities be excellent. And in some cases, you don't have enough room to accommodate all three groups in an excellent manner. So there are trade-offs. So for instance, on Fifth Street, when we added the bike lane, there was somewhat of a trade-off because of the width issues. On Mace, there are no width issues. There's plenty of room for two lanes for cars and a separated bike lane and high-quality pedestrian facilities. What we see is just sort of because, not because they needed to, but just because lanes were eliminated on Mace. And then there are these weird features that make uh, biking a bit problematic. And so the design coming forward... I've committed to having it be better for cyclists than it is today with sort of this this design that sort of was billed as making it more bike and pedestrian friendly. So it is sort of, but no, the new design will be better than it is today for bikes and pedestrians and also restore some of the traffic throughput for the people who choose to drive. Um, it, it is not, in many cases, not a zero-sum game and the Mace Boulevard corridor 
the width allows us to have it not be a zero-sum game. Okay, fair enough. Uh, we're going to move on to housing. Um, so interestingly enough, housing has become kind of the biggest concern that people have. And I, I guess that shouldn't be a huge surprise given the state of housing across the country. Um, but, you know, uh, affordable housing, when the community was pulled back, I don't know, May or so, uh, was the highest single issue. Um, I think it was only 30% um, saw it as the biggest issue, but, you know, it was much higher than any any other issue. Um, I think we have a challenge um, going forward in terms of figuring out a way to provide for more affordable housing. Uh, we have limited space in, in the city, we also have kind of limited space outside of the city where we can where we could realistically build. I'm not a big fan of peripheral development anyway. Um, and, you know, the downtown is an area that we're looking at, but the fiscal models suggest that that might not be practical. How do we fix housing in Davis? So a couple of things. I would say, you know, when we talk about housing, we talk about affordable housing. I think we need to sort of break it up into perhaps four different areas. So there's the for sale housing. And when we talk about affordable, we need to differentiate affordable from the colloquial sense, like I can afford it or I can't afford it, versus uh, what we kind of typically call big A affordable, where there's some official government sort of program that, you know, vets somebody like, okay, show me your, your wage slips or unemployment and, you know, slips and, and we will prove that you're low income. Therefore you qualify for this big, big A affordable. So there's sort of the, so the for sale, either a big A or just sort of, you know, uh, what we call market rate. And then on the rental side, uh, same sort of division, big A, affordable versus sort of market rate. I would say that the biggest challenge that Davis has faced and continues to face currently, but I believe will be a much less of an issue, is the extremely low vacancy rate for market rate apartments, so market rate rentals. The university has committed to adding, I want to say, 6,000 bedrooms, or we, we do sort of a, a different way of counting things. In the old days, it used to be units, and now it's typically we talk about bedrooms or beds. But they're going to be adding about 6,000 beds in the next two to three years. So the city has approved some apartment complexes that haven't come online yet, but the city hadn't approved apartment complexes in the past 10 to 15 years. In the past two to three years, we've approved a quite sizable number, and there'll be about 4,000 beds coming online in the next six months to two years. The first one coming out will be Sterling probably later this summer. Uh, so maybe that's nine months away. But anyway, the, the point being there, in the, in the pipeline are about, nine to 10,000 beds that will be showing up, most of them on campus, but a sizable number in the community. 
that is really going to dramatically change the rental apartment, uh, so the, the rental vacancy rate and some of the rental challenges that the community has been facing. Um, they haven't hit yet, but they will be starting to hit soon. And what we see from this sort of shortage is people renting single-family residences and squishing 10 students in. We've seen traditional sort of family neighborhoods turn into rental neighborhoods and things like that. I would say most students, when given the opportunity, would prefer to live in an apartment as opposed to a house being squished in with uh, 10 other people and two people squished in the garage and stuff like that. So I think it'll make a big impact, and long-term residents should see there should see some positive changes in their neighborhoods. There's that aspect. As far as um, affordable rentals, where the city used to have this sort of 30% 30 plus affordable requirement, and what we discovered is that was prohibitive. And as a council colleague used to say, 30% of nothing is nothing. And based upon some financial analysis, we lowered the, the default requirement to about 15%. And so that can go up or down based upon the project. It's at the discretion of the council. But I just mentioned that there will be about 4,000 beds coming um, online in the next you know, year and a half, year, um, well, six months to two years. A good portion of those roughly 15% of those will be under the big A affordable moniker. And so these will be not market rate, but slightly subsidized so that lower income folks will be able to rent an apartment in Davis. So I think that's an important piece. Uh, when interestingly, the state has this uh, requirement that if your affordable housing requirement um, is higher than 15%, they want to take a look at your program. And then you think, wait, higher? You, you would think that they would have a minimum. No, the state understands that there are communities out there that give lip service to providing places for lower-income folks to live by saying, oh, any new development has to have 50% affordable or 40% affordable, knowing full well that that means basically no apartment complexes will be built. And so they use that as a way to keep people out while sort of maintaining sort of this surface sheen of caring about folks. And so it is sort of interesting that the, the state has sort of caught on to this. So you have these uh, very wealthy uh, communities that have these very high 40 and 50% sort of affordability requirements, and they do it somewhat cynically because they just don't want their nice single-family neighborhoods to have to encounter people who might live in an apartment complex or something. So uh, that's kind of it on the rental side. I feel like on the rental side, we've made some good progress. Within a year or two, we'll see some of the results of the work that we've done the past couple of years. On the for sale side, we have a lot of ways to go. Uh, personally, as far as the affordable in terms of colloquial, you know, we need an affordable place to live type of thing. So you have, you know, new staff and faculty at UC Davis and they want to buy a home. Many of them are uh, building um, or choosing to live in Woodland or Dixon and just because of the, the, the lower prices there in terms of uh, what they can get. 
for the city of Davis, I think we need to start thinking about smaller footprints. So uh, some people uh, don't like this um, this idea, but uh, this idea of affordable by design. So an 800 square foot unit or home is going to be inherently less expensive than a, you know a 1500 square foot home. And a very well designed 800 or a thousand square foot home is actually quite livable for uh, a couple or even a small family. And Davis has a lot of advantages. So we're talking about the downtown plan update. There are lots of people who would be willing to give up, you know, an 1800 square foot home to live in a thousand square foot unit downtown where they're able to walk to walk and bike to everywhere they need to go. And they don't really need to depend on a car and be stuck in traffic to do the things they want to do. Davis has good schools. We have an intact downtown. We have a lot of amenities as well as the university has a lot of amenities. So, um, I know that some people sort of say, oh, well, you know, nobody would choose that. Well, if you spend any time in San Francisco or other major cities, people willingly will give up square footage to live in a place that has a lot of activity and a lot of sort of things going on. And so this idea that, you know, everybody has to have a 2,000 square foot home with a white picket fence is just not true. So where the city can be actively involved in helping provide some options for people, um, I believe, is really on the size of the units that we're approving. So one discussion that I have not seen us have yet, uh, and I'm a little surprised because it's got to be coming up, is the Measure R renewal. And of course, for those who have been living in a cave for the last 20 years, Measure R is the citizens initiative that uh, requires a an approval vote by the voters anytime the city uh, attempts to change land use designation that's outside of the city so if if you have a peripheral development it not only has to go through the the city council's entitlement process but then it has to gain voter approval um, is, is that coming up? Do you anticipate anything changing with that? So uh, that does need to be renewed. Uh, it expires in 2020. So we need to put it on the ballot by this November so that it can be renewed. I hear people talk about, you know, improvements to Measure J are... Um, and um, so J being the initial and then the R being the renewal of it. So um, personally, I fully support the renewal of Measure JR. It's not that there aren't problems with it, but compared to the way the world was without it, I believe the, the world, we are much better with it than without it. As far as this idea of new and improved and better, um, nobody has really publicly shown specifics as to what they're proposing. So I, I it's almost like a throwaway statement in, in my mind when people say, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm uh, for making some changes to make it better. W well, what does that mean? Okay, tell me what specific changes. And then there's sort of a blank stare back. And so in theory, would you like a better job? Would you like a better job? Yeah, I would. 
oh, okay, well, tell me more about it. Oh, well, I can't really, but uh, you need to quit your job and then, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you the, the address of the new job you're going to work at. Like, that's just a little bit too vague. And so with Measure JR, I'm fully supportive of renewing it as is. Uh, if somebody comes up with specifics that, in my mind, make it better, I'm happy to listen. But this, this, this notion of, uh, you know, I'm coming up with, uh, you know, I support and improve Measure JR without even, you know, telling us what that improvement is. Um, because my guess is what someone thinks is an improvement, many p people would think uh, as uh, a weakening of it. So that'll be interesting. But yeah, to your point, it's been relatively quiet given the fact that we need to put it on the ballot this November for renewal and uh, so that it there, there's no gap in the coverage because it needs to kick into effect by January 1st of 2021, if I'm not... Uh, getting confused here. So anyway, um, yeah, I would just say that the world, uh, the city of Davis without some community requirement for voting on some of these sort of very, very large community changing proposals. Uh, yeah, I think it's necessary to, to have that community wide vote. Yeah. Just make a point here because, you know, um, and I've made this point on the Vanguard itself, you know, one of the things that we really don't know what it looks like to walk a project all the way through the Measure R process because we've never actually done it before. And so when Nishi and West Davis Active Adult Community actually get built, those will be the two, uh, first two projects to, uh, to get an affirmative vote and then go all the way through. And I think at some point there, uh, it would be helpful to kind of audit the process because this was put in place in 2000 and never really tested. Um, and maybe it works fine. I don't know. Uh, we and Nobody knows because we haven't actually had to do it. Um, so, so that would be the only thing I would suggest. I'm not a, uh, you know, I think, I, I think once you had the two projects passed, it took a lot of the pressure off it. I think if those two projects had gone down, there would be a lot more heat right now about, hey, we got a housing crisis. We can't get anything through. Um, as as it stands, I think, you know, the passage of those two things probably make it much more likely that people are going to renew it. But I still think the council needs to look at the process and see exactly uh, what works and what doesn't work because we haven't actually tested it. So, so I would agree with that. I mean, my day job is a process improvement engineer, and I believe pretty much everything can be improved. It's, it's, I guess I have an issue with people saying, oh, I support an improved Measure JR without, you know, specifically saying what that is. So you're absolutely correct that uh, Nishi and West Davis Active Adult are the only two projects that have made it uh, passed the voters and been approved, you know, if somebody said, oh, well, the timing of the fees that we pay, it, rather than 100% of the fees doing on day 90, what if 50% of the fees are due on day 45, and then at day 365, the other 50% are due? You can look at that and go, oh, okay, sure, right? There's a specific proposal, and it's addressing a specific issue. I think those types of things 
Absolutely. But this sort of wave of the hand and, oh, new and improved, I, I get a little nervous, especially when people say, oh, well, if it's for this, then it doesn't have to go through Measure JR. Or, you know, it's, it's really, you know, what exactly are the quote-unquote improvements that they're seeking? Fair enough. Um, so kind of the last topic, I, I guess we're going to uh, have time to discuss economic development um, speaking of Measure JR, looks like that might be the next uh, Measure R vote that we have, um, ARC, Aggie Research Campus. Um, and, you know, I think there's going to be an interesting trade-off in people's minds between the need for the city to be able to generate revenue, the need for the city to have more revenue from uh, economic development and the p potential impact of traffic on the Mace Corridor, which is, as we've already discussed, uh, impacted. What are your early thoughts on that? It's going to be important for the Aggie Research Campus proposal, formerly known as the Mace Ranch Innovation Center, to really connect the dots for us in terms of what it's doing for our community. Um, I think people rightfully have some skepticism when a developer approaches the city and says, hey, I've got this super duper project. And then when they describe it, you're sort of sitting there trying to think, well, I see how that helps you, but how's it helping the existing folks at Davis? How's that helping, you know, make our, you know, address some of our community goals? And so it's going to be important for them to really sort of lay out why this is beneficial to Davis. And I think they can, it, it, depending on how, what the specifics of the proposal are. It is possible to do that. It is possible to show that there is going to be a net benefit to the city. Um, but it's also possible that if it's just sort of a run-of-the-mill, just sort of here you go, here's a business park, and we're throwing in an apartment complex, the average person is probably correct in saying, I don't really see any benefit for us as a community. I don't really see any benefit, uh, you know, for me as an individual. So it'll, it'll be interesting. I would say that there are a couple of things. I think if there's a innovative design, innovative is sort of a, a tricky word, but anyway, if there's a design that has best practices around where people work, how people get to work, how people run errands, and there's a good integration with the cycling and pedestrian network of Davis so that uh, an average person would think, oh, yeah, you know, this is going to really address some of our concerns about uh, the typical car-centric uh, designs that we've been seeing. And the problem with the car-centric designs is it adds to the already problematic traffic on Interstate 80 and a Mace and on 2nd and and so, yeah, so that's one thing to closely look at. Another one is to look at what will the net revenue be to the city? Why will this be good? Why will this help support our parks? Why will this help support the city services? Why will this, you know, help us? And then at some level, there's some regional questions as well. You know, does this help meet not only Davis's sort of long-term goals, but some of the goals of the region? So they, they have a pretty heavy lift in front of them. They, they can be successful, but it'll really depend on the specifics that they're proposing. 
And so that, that'll be interesting. Um, um, but as you know, uh, the Davis voters um, are fairly discerning folks, and so uh, they, they do have a, um, a challenge to make that case, but they will need to connect the dots for us to really lay out why this is a net positive for our community. Well, very good. Um, we're actually out of time, uh, so we didn't get to our fifth topic, uh, which is fine. That, that was uh, downtown parking. Uh, but I want to thank Brett Lee, the mayor of Davis, uh, for coming on. And we're, we're hoping to make this kind of a monthly podcast where we can kind of have this conversation about big issues. Uh, sometimes we may pick one issue. Sometimes it may be five issues, depending on what's going on. So thanks for coming on, Brett. Oh, thank you for having me, David. This has been the Davis Vanguard podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Thanks. Thanks.